Good morning. My name is David Gilbert. I'm one of the elders here at Daniel's Bible Church. Um, pastor asked me to extend his uh, wishes that he could be here with you this morning. All right, my topic today is suicide and the Christian. I want to clarify before we begin to talk about this topic what I mean by suicide. Suicide is the intentional destruction of your own life. And I want to clarify, it does not include acts done to save life that have the additional effect of destroying your own life, even if destroying your own life is virtually certain. And let me give you an example that's probably a little bit abstract. If a soldier falls on a grenade to save his buddies, he's not committing suicide. He is saving their lives. And in a perhaps a little bit different or closer call, if a, the CIA's station chief in the Middle East is captured by Hezbollah and that station chief knows he will be tortured, I don't think that CIA station chief is committing suicide if that station chief takes the cyanide pill and terminates his life because that person knows he will be tortured, he will give up information, and people will die because of that. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about suicide. We're talking about someone who says, I can't live with life, my life anymore. I'm going to destroy my life. I'm not trying to save someone's life. I'm going to destroy my own life. And I want to emphasize that this sermon is also a sermon about suicide and the Christian. If you are not a Christian, then there is little that needs to be said, but what needs to be said is sobering. If you kill yourself, you will go to hell. You won't pass go. You won't collect $200. You will pass immediately into torment to await the final judgment. And after that, you will be cast into the lake of fire. And this is not because you have committed suicide. The Gospel of John says that he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And outside of Christ, we're all subject to God's wrath. John 3.36 says that the wrath of God abides on the one who does not obey God. And that's because we're all under sin. As it says in Romans, and here Paul is quoting Psalm 14, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. And that's God's verdict on mankind. That's not what I'm saying. That's God's verdict. And unless we are truly in Christ, we are all under God's wrath. So if you are under God's wrath, suicide is not for you. But to paraphrase Cicero, while there is breath, there is hope. If you feel despair, let that drive you to Christ for his forgiveness and rescue. But as I said, this is a sermon for Christians. Now you may say, why on earth do Christians need a sermon about suicide? Well, because contrary to what you may have been told, the Christian life is no picnic We are not exempt from sickness. We are not exempt from death. We're not exempt from financial loss, from drudgery, from relationship problems, from weariness, from the flesh, and from sin. And like everybody else, we're not not exempt from the tyranny of time. When we're young, time passes too slowly. When you're in middle age and older, it passes too quickly. And what's really tyrannical about time is that what's been done can't be undone. You can make things right, but you can never undo them. You can never unsay words that have been said. It's like trying to unring a bell. And that's a a tyrannical thing. That is something that, that we're all subject to. 
and opportunities that we miss at 25, we never get back. Even if you, they come again at 26, that 25, the one that came at 25 is still gone. So on top of all these things, as Christians, we face the devil's active opposition. So the devil is out to get us. That's what Ephesians chapter 6 teaches. We also face the world's active opposition. That's what Christ teaches in John 15. Furthermore, we face the dislocation that comes from being aliens and strangers in a world that is not our home. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2 teaches. We are aliens and strangers. That's how we have to view our lives. That is an uncomfortable thing. And even past that, we have the awkwardness, for lack of a better word, of living in imperfect bodies when we know that better ones await us. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll just begin with verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So that, that there are a lot of things that in our lives that create stress and can cause despair. And there are a lot of things that are unique to being a Christian that might in particular make suicide seem appealing, if only because they they create tremendous stress and difficulty. And I know that Christians have contemplated suicide at one time or another. I know this because I know myself. And I know this because I work in a profession that brings me into contact with people who are hurting or who have suffered great loss or facing consequences for um, things they've done. And I've also lived to the ripe old age of 45, which isn't particularly old, I hope you would agree, but for those of you who are much younger, I'm I'm practically dead. Um, uh, But I remember as a child uh, hearing about my grandfather who had died, and he died of a heart attack. My grandfather was a godly man. But I remember hearing someone say that he had asked his pastor before he died whether a Christian committed suicide would go to heaven. My grandfather died of a second heart attack. He earned his living felling trees. He was a lumberjack. And after his first heart attack, he had bills that I'm sure he was afraid he couldn't pay. And so I don't think this was an idle question for my grandfather. And again, my grandfather was a godly man. He did not commit suicide. He died of a heart attack. But there was a time in his life before God took him when he was wrestling with this. Is it compatible with being a Christian for someone to commit suicide? And I'm no expert in these matters, but it seems like there are certain circumstances, or maybe just thought patterns, that can lead a person to contemplate suicide. I think one of those is financial ruin or perhaps unemployment. Uh, Maybe it's the loss of a family business that has been part of the family for decades or maybe even a century or more. Maybe it's a business that you built with your own hands. Maybe it's the loss of wealth, loss of retirement. Uh, You might fear loss of social position if you're no longer, you you have this wealth or you no longer have this particular profession or job. And of course, 
shame might accompany those things and one might be afraid, well, gee, is that shame going to affect my children and my spouse? Will my spouse leave me for greener pastures? You might fear that there's no possibility of recovery. You might experience debilitating injury. I think that sometimes causes people to think about taking their lives. They might be looking at years of pain ahead of them, many, many medical treatments, loss of the ability to provide, loss of opportunities for work or travel, fear of being a burden, fear that the spouse will lose interest. Maybe it's ruined relationships, a divorce, a girlfriend or boyfriend who promised to love you forever and ever and ever, who decides that he or she wants someone else. Um, is is an old fogey like I am at 45. It's easy to scoff at such things, you know, when, when young people, you know, they, they think the world has ended because their, you know, relationship of two weeks has ended. But um, it's it's reality. It's, it's a very painful thing. What about the death of a spouse or a child? A person might think there's nothing left to live for. Can't imagine living without that other person's presence. If my wife died, I suppose I could get another wife, but I could not get another Heather. That'd be a very difficult thing. There's also the pain of moral failure. You know, what if you've committed a crime? What if you've been negligent? Or maybe you just think you're negligent. Or maybe you're wrongly accused of being negligent. You might have to face the fact that you did harm to someone by your words or conduct. And sometimes this is... This is really sad. Sometimes the things that drive us to think that our lives are, are over are really trivial. Maybe it's a student who gets a poor grade on a test, or maybe it's a college student or high school student who gets kicked out of school or flunks out of school. On the road of life, those are speed bumps. Uh, I remember hearing about my great-great-uncle's family. I think that's who it was. Uh, the parents went away for a weekend or something or other, and uh, while they were gone, a teenage child hosted a party that got out of hand, and I guess furniture was broken or whatever. Rather than owning up to that problem and facing the minor consequences, that teen took his or her life. And as I think about that, again, I think this is so absurd. On the road of life, that's not even a speed bump. That's that little bump you hit when you cross onto a bridge. But this person thought, my life is over, I can't live with the shame. It's tragic. Now, sometimes the failure is more serious. Let's say it's a felony conviction. That changes a person's life in terms of opportunities. Of course, there might be time in prison, but it's not just that. There, There may be a besetting sin or an addiction that just seems impossible to escape. Or maybe the person's been betrayed by somebody else, and so the thoughts of suicide or even the act of suicide is a sort of bizarre act of revenge. That's one I don't get, but I understand how it could work that way. Think about bitterness, right? People have said that bitterness is a poison we drink hoping someone else will die. That's essentially what's taking place when someone says, well, I'm going to get you, watch this, and kills himself or herself. It's absurd, but people do it. Sometimes it's just weariness with life. You had hopes and dreams. You thought you were going to be this. Turns out you were that. You can't live with that. This isn't an exhaustive list. It's probably impossible to list all the circumstances that could drive a person to contemplate suicide, even a Christian. 
Uh, I suspect that the list is only limited by the number of things that can go wrong in life or by the devil's imaginative capacity to make us think that, you know, to exploit our misery. There's much I could say, okay, this thinking is wrong, and there's much that I could say about why it's wrong. For example, you might say, well, look, if, if a person thinks that money or things or the loss of another person's love is a fit occasion for suicide, maybe that person has some idolatry in his or her heart. And Exodus 20 says something about not having other gods before me, right? Idolatry is a very grievous sin. And we might find some pride in the heart of a person who thinks that being a burden on other people is a reason not to exist at all, at least not on this earth. And we all know that the Lord hates pride. We might find some theft or grand larceny in the heart of a person who thinks that because he has life insurance, he's worth more dead than alive. That sounds like theft to me. Even if your contract allows it, it's still theft. We might also talk about the toll that suicide takes on those who survive. The questions they have to wrestle with. Gee, why? what did I do that caused mom or dad or grandpa to do that? People ask questions like that. They're absurd, but they ask them and they wrestle with them. You know, why, why wasn't I enough for this person to stay around? I mean, there's the loss itself. There's the inconvenience and sometimes the real hardship of having to pick up and take over for someone else's responsibilities. And then on top of that, we might say that suicide is a species of murder and an assault on the image and dignity of God. And for that, our text would be Genesis 9. But I think these observations, uh, perhaps true in some cases, maybe not, we don't know. Bottom line is they fail to address. In other words, when I say we don't know, it's difficult to diagnose someone else's heart. Okay, Is this person grieving because the person is too proud or, or what? That's stuff we're not equipped to, to diagnose. But I think the bigger problem is that these responses fail to address the reality of the person's suffering and the real nature of his or her problem. Suicide is evil, but so are the circumstances that lead to despair. And the Bible doesn't hide or ignore human despair. It gives vent to it. Let's look briefly at Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3 will begin in verse Verse 1, afterward Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And then in verse 11, we'll skip over that. He says, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire Of course, Dave already read verses 20 to 26 where Job says, why can't I just die? But Job was a righteous man. God himself said that. God said that he was a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That was God's verdict on Job. Would it have been fitting to say to Job, look, you know, judging by your reaction here, you know, maybe your children and your wealth, you loved them too much. Maybe they were idols for you. Would it have been right to say to Job, you know what, you're just too proud. You were a big shot before, now you're not, so just deal with it. Get over yourself. It would be completely wrong. And notice that the Bible records both the times when Job seems like a hero of the faith and the times when Job is at his lowest. After he lost his children and his wealth, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that is a Christian answer, is it not? I mean, that's that's something to, to put on your, your refrigerator. When it comes down with when he comes down with boils, he says, Shall we indeed accept good for God and not adversity? Again, that's an A plus answer. But then in the next chapter, what does he do? He curses the day he was born and he wonders why he can't just die. My point is that suffering is real and even a godly man or woman can despair from time to time. Elijah, for example, requested for himself that he might die in 1 Kings 19.4. And in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 to 7, Paul indicates that he appears to have known something about what it meant to be depressed. So there is room for temporary despair in the life of a Christian. There is room for grief and depression. There is room for days when you'd rather be dead. But there's still no room for suicide. And there is no room for what is much the same. And that is giving up on life. And there's no room for these things because each amounts to a declaration that we do not trust God. In other words, when we commit suicide, we proclaim to the world that our God is not big enough either to A, deliver us from our circumstances, or B, to give eternal meaning to or produce eternal good from the circumstances that he has allowed us to endure. And this is a serious thing because believing God, not believing in God, believing God, what he says to us, is synonymous with being a Christian. Ephesians chapter 2 teaches that we are saved by grace through faith. The fact that you can't see a way through your problems, the fact that you can't imagine that your life will ever have meaning again is no excuse for not trusting God. Faith, as Hebrews says, we all know this verse, faith is the assurance of things what? Hoped for. The the conviction of things not seen. So in other words, it's not what we can, it's not that we can see a way through our problems. That's not faith. It's that we see God and we choose to trust Him. That is faith. It's faith when there does not seem to be a way through our, our problems. Now we know that God has the capacity to restore what we've what you've lost. Okay, we see this in Job. God proved to Job that he could restore Job's belongings. And he extended his life. He blessed him tremendously. He saw his children, I think, to the fourth generation, grandchildren. It's interesting, he did not double the number of children he had. And of course, I think what most people would say is the reason he didn't double the number of children is because he already had those children in heaven. They did not need to be replaced. And God has the capacity to turn injustice in wickedness, into something beautiful. He proved that to Joseph. Joseph was a serial victim of wickedness. Incredible wickedness. His own brothers sold him into slavery. And then he goes, he does the right thing, and, and you know he winds up serving uh, a very generous master and blessing his master. And the wife falsely accuses him of, of trying to you know, rape her or whatever. And he winds up in jail even though he was entirely innocent. And of course, you know, goes, you're familiar with the story, right? And then eventually he, he met his brothers, and they, or rather they found out who he was, and they were afraid, as anyone would be. 
He said, look, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Do we believe that God has that capacity in 2018 to take what is wicked, what is unjust, and to turn it into something beautiful? As Christians, we have to affirm that God has that ability. And God has the capacity to turn years of struggle or obscurity into extraordinary responsibility in ministry. If you doubt me, consider the record of King David. I don't know how long David spent running from Saul, but his prospects did not look good during that time. And I, I doubt that if he hadn't been anointed that he would be king, that he ever would have had any hope that anything like that or any inclination that something like that would ever happen to him. Consider also Moses' time in the wilderness of Midian. He goes from being uh, an adopted son of Pharaoh or grandson of Pharaoh to what? A sheep herder for a long time. Who would have ever imagined that at the end of his life he would have done what he did and had occupied the areas of responsibility? Now, again, with the possible exception of David, I don't think any of these men could have anticipated when they were going through the apparently low times of their lives how their lives would turn out. But I think we need to be clear about something. God does have the capacity to turn around our present circumstances. He has the capacity in the land of the living to bless us in ways we can't anticipate. But that is not always God's plan for us. Sometimes the deliverance we hope for never arrives in this life. God always keeps his promises, but he never promises to keep his promises on our schedule. Sometimes God calls us to die in faith without seeing his promises fulfilled. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Keep in mind, this is the land he'd been promised. But he's living like an alien as if he were in a foreign land, not the land that he'd been given. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And we see Sarah here. By faith, even Sarah herself conceived ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's skip over to verse 32 in the same chapter. And what more shall I say? And I want you to pay attention here. In this passage, there's an interesting dynamic. 
Some people experience obvious deliverance. Glorious, obvious, hallelujah deliverance. Other people don't see that. They don't see that right away. In fact, they die before they see their deliverance. So watch that dynamic and then see what what the scriptures have to say about that. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were others. Now here's the point, okay? So we saw the deliverance that God is capable of. He has not changed. He is still capable of delivering you and me from difficult circumstances. But here's the other side of it. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. That's the reminder. Okay, These are people who were, for the moment, treated as the scum of the earth. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews notes, these are people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So here, again, Hebrews is talking about people who were delivered. God has that capacity. No matter how bad your circumstances are, God has the capacity to rescue you. But if he chooses not to, That's not where our obligation to trust him ends. We don't get a pass at that point. Because sometimes God has something bigger in mind that we can't imagine. And when we are faced with hopeless circumstances, that's when we show most tangibly whether we really believe God. Again, God doesn't call us to to affirm his existence. He calls us to trust him. Think about what Paul says so many times in the New Testament. What it says in Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That righteousness, that, that's, that was his righteousness. That God told him he would receive a blessing. That he only saw the, 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 the smallest part of. He was promised land that he lived in as if he were a stranger there. All right, but what was Abraham's righteousness? It was that he believed what God had told him. Again, trusting God and believing in God are two very different things. To be a Christian means to trust God. And I'm afraid that Hebrews 10 contains a very sobering warning. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, begin in verse 35. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. As Christians, we believe that we are kept by God. That no one who belongs to Christ will be lost. But why is it we believe that? We believe that because God has chosen us. He will enable us to persevere persevere in belief. That's the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. The saints will persevere because they will continue in faith. I pray that you will never get a chance to apply this sermon. But if you do, I pray that you will choose to live by your faith. And what's more, the godly fear, fear of the one you will meet the moment you die, will keep you from committing a very grave sin. Think about this. If you can't face life, if you can't face your parents, if you can't face your spouse, if you can't face Judge Hutchison, what will you say when your Creator says, Why are you here? Let's pray. Father, this is a very sobering topic, and we are grateful because you are worthy of our faith. Uh, But Father, it is hard because there are times when it seems like all is lost and sometimes it seems like you don't care or you're not hearing. And Father, in those circumstances, help us to be reminded of your word and what it teaches that you are always with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, let us hold on to those promises because they are life and you are worthy of our trust. And Father, I pray especially for people who are in circumstances where it really does seem like there is no way out. There is no way to redeem a circumstance. Father, I pray that your spirit would be especially present with that person. And Father, for the rest of us, we, we all encounter circumstances or times when we're, we're down, where we're low. Uh, but your word teaches in Jeremiah that your mercies are new every morning. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us those mercies, that you would allow us to take a step back, get a night's sleep, do whatever it takes, it takes Father, for us to uh, feel the warmth of your presence again. And we pray, again, that you, would, that you would be with us, Father, and especially those among us who do go through hard times. Lord, help us to know what to say, or at least what not to say. And help us to be faithful to pray for those people, Father, because they are going through a test. You have counted them worthy of that test. Father, help us to uphold them, especially in prayer, so that they will pass that test. And that your name would be glorified in their difficult circumstances. In Christ's name, amen.